Hi everybody, this is Devin Boker, your host. You are listening to The Wildlife, a show about the natural world and how to protect it from a nonprofit inspiring hope of a green and just future through open access to the natural world. If you'd like to learn more about how to support our organization, every dollar counts and you can do so for as little as a dollar a month. You can check out the link in our episode notes or visit us directly at patreon.com slash the wildlife. If you listened to our Behind the Sciences segment earlier in the week, which if you didn't, I highly recommend you pause this, go back and do that. Or if you're looking at the episode title, you already know what this episode is about and who it is with. Carnivore Ecology with Dr. Mariella Ganchoff. Today, we are going to talk about what exactly are carnivores. There's a lot of misconception about that. What all they can actually eat, how their population compares to their prey, what ecosystems would look like without them present, We talk specifically about cougar behavior, a little bit about bear behavior, dramatic news coverage, human coexistence, limiting impacts, current trends in their population, a fascinating thing called recolonization, and overall how we as humans can learn to live with carnivores on the landscape. So, let's get to it. But before we can really begin to explore what carnivore ecology is as a field, we need to understand what exactly a carnivore is. Sure. So, you know, when we're looking at mammals, mammals are um, divided in orders and you have things like primates and rodents and bats. And one of those orders is carnivora, which is carnivores. And there's a lot of confusion between carnivores and a carnivorous animal. Um, carnivores are members of order carnivora, and they all share this evolutionary history, this common ancestor, you know, they have shared characteristics. And the, the, one of the defining traits and the most easily to see is the carnassial teeth. These aren't what are commonly referred to as your canine teeth. They're a little farther back. If you were to open your dog's mouth on the side corner, like near the like near the corner of its mouth towards the back, towards its eyes. It's those side teeth that kind of look like little mountainscapes. Those teeth are located on the side of the mouth, which where our molars would be basically. Mm -hmm. And they're basically like two blades, one in the top and one at the bottom on each side, just to cut things, mostly meat, but they can cut anything. And if you have a pet, at home, a cat or a dog, and it safely lets you look at their mouth, you can easily oh, okay. see it. All right, I'm just gonna take a peek. Looking in your... There they are. Okay, those teeth, those teeth, right there. But even if you give them something to chew on and they're having trouble chewing it, they're probably gonna pull it to the side and try to chew it with those special teeth. Um, and all members of carnivora have those teeth in their mouth. But are all members of carnivora meat eaters? Absolutely not. And in fact, there's only one group, one family that is a strict meat eater, which are the wildcats, the felids. 
all the other groups are mostly omnivores and even there's a few of them that are mostly herbivorous you have the panda even the black bear most of their diet is plant-based so mm. in in general as a group except for wild cats they're very opportunistic and very flexible and they can take advantage of all basically any resource they can find in the environment being opportunistic it's something that often gets a bad rap, but it's probably one of the most significant traits of this group of animals. Most prefer meat if given the chance. It's easier for them to digest. They don't have the over-the-top digestive systems of deers and the multiple stomachs of cows. Even pandas, who are almost exclusively herbivorous bamboo eaters, have trouble actually breaking it down, which is part of why they spend so much time eating this stuff. Alas, it's everywhere, so it's the best option. Right. How do their population sizes compare to their prey? It all comes down to energy. I mean, frankly, virtually everything in the universe does. It's a little bit like this. You need energy to survive. You need energy to move, to interact, to mate, to eat. And if you're a carnivore, specifically a carnivorous carnivore because we know that not all of them are, you have to find that meat. Now, you already know that if you were to go outside, there's mostly green, mostly plants, depending on where you are in the world, followed by things that eat those plants, and then even less of the things that eat the things that eat the plants. Because all of the energy from the sun is in those plants, which then gets taken up by the things that are eating the plants, and then another tier, the predators. So when you look at, you know, predator-prey relationships, the, the higher up you are in the food chain, uh, the lower the population density. So usually when we think about a food chain, uh, you can see it as a triangle where mm. a is the biggest thing is the producer. So the species that produce their own food, like plants or algae in the ocean, and they have the primary consumers like herbivores, and you have secondary consumers. And because of, there's a lot of energy loss between the different levels. So basically about 10% of that energy is transfer, transferred to the next level. So the amount of energy that's available to basically become a living thing is less and less the higher up you go. So it's the populations of primary consumers and secondary consumers, they're always gonna be smaller than the level that they depend on. So for predators, their, their population density is always gonna be less dense than the prey. But there is this thing called predator-prey dynamic. So that scenario that I just said about the pyramid is, is very static in what we would expect from just a theory. But mm -hmm. there is this thing called predator-prey dynamics in their cycles. So sometimes you have an increase in prey, so you have an increase in predators, and then there's a decrease because there's more predation of the prey population. Sure. And at that point, let's say you do a study right at the moment where the predators are about to crash that population because there's no food. If mm -hmm. you look at the exact point, you're going to see, oh my God, there's so much more predators than prey, but it's not sustainable. It's just a point in that cycle. And of course, there's going to be a lot of starvation and mortality afterwards and all the cycle starts again. So in general, yes, they're less dense, but it can go back and forth. Uh, of course, those cycles don't occur everywhere, but they, they absolutely can. Now, for most predators, it's it's hard, physically difficult to get prey to begin with. That's why they tend to go over sick, weak, young types of animals. 
if given the chance, they're going to go for whatever is the easiest way for them to get energy. In other words, how much energy can they get while spending the least amount of energy? And honestly, if you just think about it, this is something that we do too. It's like when you get home from work and you're really tired and instead of cooking a meal, you just want to order something in. You want to get Grubhub or DoorDash or you want to go through a drive-thru or you want to pick up a ready-made meal at the store. It's the exact same kind of thing. We're all animals. We all follow the same basic rules. Energy is everything. What I wonder is um, what would what would their ecosystems look like if, if they were no longer there? Right. So that, that scenario that I said is, of course, a very simplified scenario in which yeah. there is what we call a top-down effect. So the mm-hmm. prayer... The predator has the biggest impact on the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's a lot of what we call bottom up. So at that point, the, the herbivore population is not actually regulated by the predator, but it's actually regulated by the amount of food available. Mm. So it's in different areas, we can have top down or bottom up or both at the same time. So it's a very complex scenario. Sure. Now, uh, for these two species in particular, you know, like everything in ecology, it depends. You know, it depends yeah. on the size, on the diet. Um, specifically for cougars and basically any large predator, um, losing a predator can have very strong effects on the local food webs. Mm-hmm. And it, they can facilitate, for example, range expansion of smaller carnivores that normally are suppressed. By the large carnivore, for example, you have this, there's this uh, thing called mesoprator release. Mm-hmm. So basically an example of that is you remove wolves from the equation and now coyotes are expanding mm. everywhere, foxes are expanding everywhere because you don't have that large predator that suppresses that, what we call meso carnivore. Meso means basically medium sized carnivore. Sure. And okay. they can also, of course, if, they had a strong effect on the prey population. You know, you remove them, the prey population goes up, which can have a negative impact on a plant population, which of course has a negative impact on everything that depends on that plant, insects, songbirds, everything. Um, Now, when we look at a different animal like a bear, which is not really a huge predator like a cougar, Mm -hmm. you know, are omnivores and their diet is extremely flexible. They'll eat, anything really and it really depends on their diet in the area but they can impact plant populations things like berries acorns grasses yeah. they can eat a lot of invertebrates like termites and in some coastal areas like in alaska they can eat a lot of fish like salmon and at that point they're basically taking nutrients from the water and taking them inland so that really helps the soil and all the nutrients in the soil and the plants that depend on that so basically having those large carnivores, whether they're predators or not, really helps processes like you know carbon storage, seed dispersal, scavenger diversity, nutrient cycling, so many things um, that are just vital for ecosystem functioning. Now, it just so happens that before this, or maybe just after, I don't know, but sometime around the time of this interview, about a year ago, uh, we also interviewed Brogan Holcomb, all about bears. Dr. Mariella Ganchaw studies both bears and cougars, as we mentioned, but in the spirit of not spoiling Brogan's episode, let's really just focus in on cougar behavior here. You know, the, the interesting thing about these two, these two organisms, bears and cougars, is kind of like you just said, I mean, there's kind of a big contrast. You know, you have this opportunistic omnivore 
in a way who just, you know, is very flexible and they hibernate. Mm-hmm. And, and then you have a cougar, which, um, I mean, I guess I don't know a whole ton about in terms of their, their basic bi- biology and, and behavior and what they mostly eat and how often. Um, right. Can you, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. So, you know, uh, cougars as a species, the, you know, they're a large cat, they're native to the, the Americas, North America, South America. They're actually the most widely distributed mammal in the Western hemisphere. Hmm. And they're very flexible. They can really inhabit any habitat, really. You can find them in jungles. You can find them in uh, a step in a grassland. They're very, very flexible. And of course, their diet is going to be uh, dependent on the prey available in different areas. Sure. They have a preference for ungulates. So ungulates are mammals that have hooves, so mm-hmm. things like deer. But honestly, they will they will eat anything they can find too. They really like in some areas in Patagonia, for example, there's um, not a lot of native prey left. Mm-hmm. So they eat a lot of exotic mammals such as uh, European hare and wild boar. So, you know, it really depends on uh, what's available to them. But yeah, they, they do have a, a soft spot for ungulates, I guess. Sure. Um, in the U.S., they've lost about 40% of their historical range. So wow. in the Western U.S., they're still present and their range is expanding. And we have, we've noticed some... Uh, populations that have started to reproduce again after many, many years. Mm-hmm. But in Eastern US, they're basically wiped out and the only breeding population left is in Florida. Uh, but we are seeing increasing number of records of you know public sightings of cougars from coming from the Western US into the Eastern US. So I think due to an increased legal protection, and an improvement of the public's views towards uh, cougars in general and carnivores in general, I think they are having this opportunity to recover and expand again on places where they used to be. Cougars are a conundrum. People think that they're beautiful creatures, but they're also often forgotten as natives of North America. When encounters occur, heck, even sightings, the coverage of them tends to be like Shark Week-level dramatic, like, like Riverdale level dramatic soap opera dramatic just you know dramatic (laughs) oh yeah well you know it's difficult because you know if you're not used to living with an animal all you know about it might be things from like a movie or very you know not really realistic information so or those like uh dramatization um tv shows you know attacked by a cougar um Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. those don't help um in, and what's kind of funny is there's this there's this whole thing in Minnesota where um, uh, so our Department of Natural Resources has said that we do get transient individuals who kind of enter the state, usually from the Dakotas, um, but there's not really an established like breeding population within the state. Right. And even though they say that there's so many Minnesotans who like on their trail cam or uh, anecdotally or they'll see one on the road, they <laughs> they'll they'll post pictures and they'll say, well, the DNR said we don't have any cougars here. And then the DNR is like, well, we didn't say that. We said, <laughs> There's like this whole Wait, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm actually uh, working on um, cougars in all the Great Lakes right now. It's a project mm-hmm. that not, um, has been published yet, but I'm basically looking at all public sightings of cougars in all around the Great Lakes, including, you know, uh, 
Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin. Oh, very cool. And there is no uh, sightings of, well, not that I've seen so far that of uh, babies, mm. of kittens. Yeah. So you, there's definitely animals coming in. There's definitely animal dispersing, but there's no confirmed reproduction in mm. that area. I'm sure there will be in the future. I mean, you know, it, it's coming, it's gonna happen. I can't tell you exactly when, but yeah. the way things are progressing, it, it definitely will happen at some point, but not not yet. You know, um, back in the day, it's been a, a couple of years now, I, I used to work in um, wolf conservation. And um, oh, cool. I remember when I first got started with a lot of that, one of the things that struck me was the range that a lot of these individual wolves or even packs would have, you know, 145 square kilometers, 180 square kilometers. And those are really staggeringly large portions. And then you think about cougars who are coming from another state into, you know, Eastern Minnesota, um, which just sounds staggering. Like what, what is, what is the typical range of a cougar? The typical home range, you mean? Oh, it can be anything. It really depends on how many resources there are in the environment. Of okay. course, you know, yeah. animals are economists in a way. They don't want to waste energy roaming if they can get everything they need in a small area. Sure. So the more resources, the smaller the home range, typically, right? There are exceptions yeah. to that. But um, they can have hundreds of square miles of range. And the same for bears. You know, it really depends on what's present on the environment. And in terms of those animals that you're seeing in the Great Lakes, they're not, that's not part of their home range. They are just dispersing. They're looking mm -hmm. for bear areas to live. And you can have animals dispersing hundreds of miles easily. Mm -hmm. um, we had a, a bear, a female bear actually walk about, I think it was, a hundred miles in maybe wow. a week or two. Wow. So she was definitely looking for something, you know, <laughs> uh, and she found it. She, she established a new, she had a collar on. So she found a new area that she evidently, she liked and she established a home range. And you can definitely see that shift from, she had a home range before, she started dispersing kind of linear movement and then another home range about, you know, 50, hundred miles away from it. So there's definitely, <laughs> They know what they're doing, you know, at different parts. Um, yeah, just looking for to survive, basically. A major factor in the size of the home ranges of both of these animals is population. Of course, food availability is super important too. If there's tons of food in a small area, then there's no reason for the bear or cougar to venture far. But abundant food also allows a population to grow and eventually branch out. At the same time, not enough resources may mean a larger home range while the bear or cougar seeks out food and shelter. It can go either way. So how are their populations? For cougars, um, you know, in some areas they're very established and very stable, mm -hmm. but in other areas they're definitely increasing and that's what's pushing for them to start dispersing into other areas. Then you have the, um, the Florida panther, which is, of course, endangered and is having a lot of challenges to persist on the long term. Mm -hmm. Now for black bears, black bears are actually doing great in, in general. You know, they're increasing, they are expanding because of all this new legal protection uh, that they've had in the past, I would say, 50 years um, or so, 70 years or so. You know, in the past, black bears were extirpated from many, many areas. So it's not mm -hmm. like they're susceptible to human mortality. But now with habitat protection and legal protection, 
they're really bouncing back in a lot of areas and expanding uh, their range. So they're actually doing great. They're the most abundant bear in the world. So uh, they're, they're doing pretty good. So great news, right? Pretty much the opposite of almost every other conservation story we hear. So uh, I'd count that as a win. But with growing populations comes growing interactions with, with humans like us. But rather than focus on how their behavior could impact us, let's talk about how our behavior can impact them. Right, yeah, and it's definitely a huge component of looking at uh, the recolonization of animals in all this human modified landscapes because, you know, it's not a protected area where they're not going to be interacting with people, yeah. they're mostly um, in areas with, with humans. So on one hand, you know, people can be a source of food for these animals. Uh, and that means anything from, you know, garbage to bird feed, pet food, or for cougars, things like cattle, you know, cows and sheep. Um, mm -hmm. And in that way, if not managed properly, it can, it can really cause a lot of conflict. You know, in, in general, people are a source of easy food. So of course they're gonna try to get it. And if not, if you don't make it difficult for them, they're gonna keep coming back. They're very smart animals, they have a good memory, they're very flexible and adaptable. So if they can get an easy meal, they'll try to get it. Now, on the other hand, humans are a source of mortality for adult, adult bears and cougars. And that means it can be vehicle collisions, it can be hunting. So in some areas, the only source of mortality for adults is humans. So they create this fear of, or aversion that results in individuals usually avoiding human settlements or roads. So it's, a, it's actually a very complex dynamic that is this fear of humans, but also humans are a source of resources. Yeah. So it's a, it's a very complex dynamic uh, and it, it's really not an easy answer anywhere to try to predict what the animals are gonna do. Sure. These large carnivores aren't going anywhere, which means that some of us, more than others, are going to have to learn what sharing the landscape with such a creature means. So how do we reduce conflicts and foster tolerance? Yeah, so, you know, and like I said, people, we are sources of food for them. And if we combine that with uh, some habitat laws or prey laws, um, mm. it does lower the amount of natural resources in an area. So the animals, you know, are just trying to survive and looking for things to eat. And that will result, you know, of course, in interactions and conflict. For black bears in particular, you know, throughout North America, the two biggest uh, sources of conflict are human food sources, um, you know, in the expansion of, you know, human development, people building houses and stuff closer to uh, wild areas, um, and cattle. So basically garbage, property damage, livestock depredation. Um, and the thing is, those large mammals, you have cougars and, and you have bears and even wolves and, and large mammals in general, just, they just don't have um, the ecological clues to figure out that going into a human area is risky sometimes. Mm -hmm. So basically, these areas have this attractive resource that they want, and they don't realize that it can result in a mortality for them. So they yeah. basically act as, as an ecological trap. That's, that's what... An ecological trap is an area that an animal perceives as having something that's very attractive, mm -hmm. but it ultimately it results in mortality and something bad for them. So all of these areas that these animals are attracted to, but they result in death, are ecological traps. But um, 
you know, the best thing that the public can do is, especially in areas where they're being recolonized, so they're not used to having this animal around. Of course, it's different when you have people that have been coexisting with a large carnival for hundreds of years versus when you have a population that is not used to living with a large animal. So they can't really predict what the animal is going to do. So the best thing is just learning about that species, learn about their behavior, and learn about how to prevent conflict, which most of the time it just means reducing those attractants, those things that the animals want and they're easy to get. And preventing conflict before it happens in the areas that are being recolonized is by far you know, the easiest, cheapest, most effective way to deal with conflict before it happens. Um, and just to people in general, don't be afraid to reach out to your local conservation agency, to your local state biologist. They're usually more than happy to give you information and resources, you know, is their job and they can really help yeah. you maybe dispel some myths or help you figure out the best way to handle that particular species in that particular area. So, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to them. They're usually very happy to do it. And, and you mentioned recolonization, which is something that a lot of your work seems focused around. How, mm-hmm. how does that, I have a, several questions on that. Number one, just how does that work in general? Number two, what's like the socio-political, you know, how, you know, if, if you're going into an area that hasn't had these organisms in a while and people are not used to them anymore and you're going to be recolonizing them there, I mean, what, how does that play out? I mean, there, there are a lot of public hearings and conversation and input, or is it kind of just a, you do it and then educate? I, I'm, I'm curious. Well, you know, as, as like we said, you know, large carnivores are one of the most persecuted groups of animals and they've suffered massive range uh, contractions in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but in recently, because not only in North America, but also in, in Europe and in South America, because of having a stronger legal protection and very habitat protection and just education and outreach in general that makes the public more tolerant to them, they're starting to come back naturally. Now, you can also basically kickstart that project, uh, the, the process by reintroducing the animal. So yeah. there's different ways of, different uh, intensity of involvement in that process. You can basically let it happen naturally, or you can take an animal and just try to form a new population. And that's what happened, for example, in Arkansas with the black bear population. They were introduced, reintroduced, and it was very successful. And now there's thousands of black bears in Arkansas. And actually, it was so successful that now black bears are starting to expand into neighboring states, such as Mississippi, Missouri, or, and Texas. Uh, those states never had a active participation in black bear restoration at that point, but they're having black bears now. So it's a different dynamic, uh, basically having that spillover effect from, uh, from neighboring states. And now when you're trying to manage for a recolonization, whether it's an active or passive process, there's, there's a science component and then the social component, right? So for the science, you need all that information about population growth and reproduction and suitability in the landscape and connectivity yeah. and mortality. And those are all the things that, for example, I work on, on, on those species. But um, there's also the, all the social component, right? And the most important thing is giving information to the public to learn about these species that they're not familiar with. Yeah. And 
um, giving them information to prevent conflict. Like I said, it's the easiest, cheapest way to promote coexistence. And you can also talk with, um, with kids, for example, educating this next generation. There's going to be living with the scarimors in the future, trying to connect them with the species and with nature in general. And it can help, you know, get rid of a lot of myths that surround um, those large animals that a lot of people see as very threatening and very aggressive when in reality, you know, they're just, they're just trying to survive uh, like everyone else. Um, it's very important letting the public know about good science-based uh, mm. information, you know, there's, and also that there are resources available for them, you know, that state agents can help prevent or mitigate conflict. And by targeting outreach and education and management in those areas that we know are gonna have conflict in the future. Because for example, right now, I work a lot with the Missouri Department of Conservation and the density is pretty low right now. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, the population is gonna grow over time. So there are areas that are gonna have conflict or more conflict in the future. So by targeting those areas now, before it happens, yeah. you can really this proactive approach on uh, trying to minimize it in the future. You, you spoke to something that I spent a very long time trying to figure out, and I'm just kind of wondering, I guess, what, what your thoughts are, is that that fear, that dislike, that sometimes mm -hmm. full-on hate of, of carnivores. And um, you know, whether it be bears, wolves, mountain lions, coyotes, um, I'm not sure what it is. If it's pop culture, if it's old stories, if it's the fact that, you know, they eat things <laughs> in, a, in a way that, you know, isn't super pretty. I don't know. I, I can't figure out really why it is that, you know, these and not, you know, birds of prey or really large fish or you know, whatever it might be aren't you know mm -hmm. looked at uh, in the same way well you, you it's i mean it's important to realize that you know in the past when you know humans were not you know living in houses and yeah. stuff a large carnival could kill you yeah you know and they still can right now i mean mm -hmm. it's not super common i guess it depends on the area that in the world but you know it's is that fear we're not we don't like being prey yeah. <laughs> and I guess they remind us that we can't be. So it's a very uncomfortable feeling. And in addition to that, they compete with us for food. You know, if you have mm. cattle and they eat your cattle, of course, if you're a small family and they eat yeah. your food and then your children don't have food to eat, well, of course, you're going to be mad at that and you're yeah. going to try to get rid of that problem. So I think it, it's really, it depends on if you're a small farmer in the middle of nowhere or if you're a city dweller in an apartment, you know, the, the way you see carnivores yeah. are going to change a lot because they're not threatening your livelihood or your safety. Um, and I guess it's easy to talk about coexisting with them when you're not you're actually doing it yourself. Yeah. Uh, but um, there are ways of doing it. And there are a lot of myths, even for people that live with them all the time, there are a lot of myths surrounding them. and specifically about the, their aggression like they're mm -hmm. just killing machines out there just to kill everything and they're just not that that takes a lot of energy you know they're not gonna try to you know humans are not really their main prey we're not really big and fat and tasty like a deer you know or something yeah. like that so it's really not worth 
trying to come after us. So most of the attacks that happened are, you know, defensive or things like that. So yeah, yeah it's, um, it depends on the context, but also, yeah, there's a lot of myths. And one thing that I found in, in Argentina, one thing that, that we found is that educating children helps so much into dispelling myths that are held by the parents. Mm -hmm. Because parents are usually very defensive, adults in general, very defensive about the things that they believe in. Sure, and yeah. uh, But when you have their own kid going to them and be like, you know what, actually, you know, there's this thing and this other thing, they're a lot more open into receiving that information and changing their beliefs. So, you know, I think there are ways of reaching those people without trying to sound like, oh, you have to think what I want you to think, you know, it's just yeah. trying to be like, no, this is, it's going to make your life better by not thinking these things that are not actually true. Yeah. You know, that reminds me, uh, about a month or so ago, we did an episode on snow leopards and we talked to, um, Dr. Kusub Sharma mm -hmm. and, for, with snow leopard trust. And, um, he had talked about kind of very much the same thing, how frequently, and, and it's just funny because it's, you know, in Asia and, and not like here in the United States or something, it's so similar, um, that, that that is kind of how it plays out. It's, it's almost a battle of urban versus rural when it comes mm -hmm. to the perception of carnivores. And it's like, well, you can't do that. They're not a threat, um, you know, while you're in a city <laughs> and you don't experience right. any of that. And then the rural part and and their approach to it has is just really interesting how um how so much of it is centered around those rural communities and like they even have a uh, uh an insurance program that people can pay into so that if they do lose livestock to a snow leopard it's covered and so mm -hmm. then they're not as likely to want to go after the snow leopard because things are taken care of and it's just a very interesting approach that rather than it being like the city or legislative you people in rural areas have to do what we're telling you to do because it's morally right. It's instead looking at the wisdom and the knowledge of the people locally in these rural communities and saying, you know, this land, you know, how you need to live. What can we do to foster to help you. existence? Yeah. yeah. I think in the end, it's just trying to shift. Uh, so what those people are trying, just trying to make a living. Right. So yeah. I think in the end, it, it comes down to how can, the presence of that carnivore and that livestock benefit them. So in a lot of areas, sometimes there is no benefit and it's about basically compensating that person mm -hmm. for losses that they're having from having to coexist with that carnivore. But in other areas, you have areas like Brazil where you have so much tourism for things like jowers and stuff. So in, in those areas, there are a source of tourism and a source of economic growth. So it's just trying to shift that view okay okay we want this carnivores in this landscape because they're giving everyone you know money to live and to grow and you know persevere so it's just trying to shift what those animals cost in those people that are, have to coexist with them uh, very directly yeah you know you, you mentioned something that is earlier you mentioned jurassic park and that's one of the things that i always think about more recently um when watching jurassic park is like why is it that every carnivorous dinosaur or every predatory dinosaur just constantly, you know, like in the movies, just like constantly killing things? <laughs> like, not, oh, like I, I know that possibly. <laughs> there's just no way. It's just people need to realize that animals don't have unlimited sources of energy. Yeah. You know, even just imagine living 
in the wild and you don't even know where your next meal is coming from, you're just not going to waste energy running around and trying to put yourself and get hurt and yeah. things like that. It's just animals are a lot more cautious, yeah. a lot more, you know, the careful about mm -hmm. the things they do, even for things like snakes. People think that, um, you know, venomous snakes are just going to bite you at every opportunity. And I used to be a museum educator and I used to tell people, you know, making venom is really expensive for yeah. the snake. You know, it's just not going to waste it on something unless it feels absolutely threatened that you're going to kill them. So then, of course, they're going to try to defend themselves, but you're not food for them. So why would they even waste that on you when they can just save it and use it for something that they can eat? Yeah. So, you know, it's just trying to shift that perspective that they're killing relentless killing machines so that, you know, they're just an animal like any other just trying to survive. So how do you, uh, you know, in this recolonization effort, you know, how do you measure progress and, and what does the process look like right so um what is progress right so yeah. um again there's the science aspect and the social aspect for the science aspect uh i guess it's measuring range expansion mm -hmm. and there's basically two ways of doing it the the expensive way and the cheap way the expensive way is to go out and do surveys you know every year in different areas but that is very expensive very time consuming so most of the states that I've worked with so far rely on public sightings, public reports. So, you know, they really encourage people that every time they see an animal of interest, you know, cougar, puma, or whatever, um, mm -hmm. to submit it to the local state agency. And, you know, it's, if they're evaluated by stuff, you know, sometimes they're not reliable. And sometimes they are, you'd be surprised what people you know, report as cougars or bears and, you know, what they actually are. And they, it can be anything. It could be like a raccoon. It could be a big dog. So it's, it's important to evaluate those sightings to make sure that they're accurate. Um, and then you can see that range expansion over time and how they increase over time and, and you know, and they move north or east or whatever direction in that area. Now, Another thing is reproduction. Like we said, you know, like for pumas and Great Lakes, there's no documented reproduction right now. So that would be another measure of progress, starting to see babies basically all around that area. It would mean that they've found a place that they can stay in, a place that is safe and good enough for them to start reproducing. That would definitely yeah. bring it to the next step. Okay, they are establishing themselves here. And of course, one baby is not enough, right? You have to right. see consistent reproduction in an area to be like, okay, this is a good area for them. And you're going to have starting to get new animals from this place instead of getting animals that are dispersing from far away. They are local. So they're, of course, they're going to start. It's like a new, you know, source for yeah. that um, growing population. Yeah. As always, before we end these kinds of conversations, we want to end on a note of uh, conservation, like uh, need to knows highlights important things to know moving forward you know what what if given the opportunity which i guess is this opportunity would our guest like the world to know about their field about their their subject animal before we part ways here's what she had to say sure so i think the main point is that you know there's no one size fits all solution for conservation and something that I've realized in the past few years is that in many areas, um, mostly in the Eastern US and around the world, you know, private landowners are gonna play a key role in the persistence 
um, not only of large carnivores, but a lot of you know mammals, animals, and plants in general. Um, we are increasingly realizing the you know incredible value of community-based science and you know giving people the information and, and the power to protect and manage the, their own local resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and this being this strong, uh, I want to say like paradigm shift, in that we need to get rid of this binary view of it's either a pristine wilderness or it's a human area you know there, this black and white thing or this is where the animals belong this is where the humans belong um there's a very you know outdated view of the planet that it doesn't work you know animals uh, it's very difficult for them to live on islands of habitat surrounded by urban areas or suburban areas or agriculture it's just very difficult for them to disperse and to move um, and that's why corridor ecology and landscape ecology is so important trying to maintain that connectivity and that genetic flow between them. But also, and most conceptually, it erases the way of living of so many indigenous communities around the world. You know, they live with animals all the time and there's no this thing, this is where the animals are, this is where the people are, you know. There are ways of achieving sustainable, you know, growth and coexisting with wildlife and really ensuring our own survival in the long term, really, it, you know, it's just depends on us and learning from that and thinking about what we're willing to do to make that happen. Thank you again to Dr. Mariella Ganchoff. Uh, it was wonderful having you on the show. It's been some time since we have uh, had done the interview, um, but we're just happy to get it out there and I'm happy for you all to, uh, to hear it. And hopefully you learned a few things like how not all things that are carnivores are what you would expect. That not all carnivores eat meat. It's not necessarily a given. And just a little bit about the the behavior, the lives, the the spatial ecology of cougars and, and bears and others. Like we mentioned before, her work is fascinating, as you now know. Um, check out her website. It's in the it's there's a link for it in the um, episode notes. Definitely worth it. Lots of cool stuff there. And give her a follow on Twitter at Mariella, so M-A-R-I-E-L-A, underscore G, underscore G. Thank you for listening to The Wildlife. This is Devin Boker. Peace out, Rainbow Trout.